Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At the age of 17, Melissa Ann Collins was trying hard to make life work. It wasn't easy. The previous year, while attending Akron's Garfield High School, she learned she was pregnant. And now here she was, the mother of an eight-month baby girl, Jasmine, a cherub-faced beauty who had become the light of her life. Melissa was determined to navigate the world of adulthood and responsibility. She signed up for classes at the Teenage Pregnancy Center and moved out of her parents' house, subletting rooms from a woman who lived on Westwood Avenue in Akron's Highland Square neighborhood. She didn't have a job or a driver's license, so she depended heavily on her mom to help out. And Betty Collins was happy to do it. On August 8th, 1991, Betty picked up Melissa and Jasmine to run some errands. They went to Rolling Acres Mall, swung by JCPenney to pick up studio pictures of her baby granddaughter, then it was off to the laundromat. Around 4 p.m., Betty dropped her daughter and granddaughter off at their apartment and headed back home. Melissa and Jasmine Collins were never seen again. From Ohio Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and BeaconJournal.com, this is Unresolved, a look at the unsolved murders and disappearances from the Akron area. I'm Stephanie Warsmith, a reporter with the Akron Beacon Journal, and helping with this ongoing series, which is covered in this podcast, as well as stories in print and online, are Ohio Mystery co-host Polish Slice and Steve Yoder. My, how times have changed, Steve. I used to get up in the morning and go to the front door and grab my daily paper. Now, I wake up and grab my phone. When I see that little number over the email icon, I know my paper has arrived. The Akron Beacon Journal, digital style. Oh yeah, me too. I gotta have my paper. I love how the digital version looks just like the print edition. I can flip the pages on my phone and know when I'm done. I don't have to wonder if I'm missing anything. I also love that I'm supporting local journalism. 
You know, as citizens, we can't be everywhere. We need skilled and trained reporters telling our communities' stories and looking out for us. And right now, did you know you can get the Akron Beacon Journal delivered to your email every single day for the next six months for a buck? Wait, wait, one dollar? That is crazy. What's crazy is not doing it. And look, if you're not in the Akron area, subscribe to your own hometown paper. A free press is so important to a democracy, we can't lose our watchdogs. Right. Just Google Akron Beacon Journal or your hometown paper, toss in the word subscription, and I'm sure your browser will do the rest and take you right where you need to be. Now, Unresolved, Episode 2, Melissa and Jasmine Collins. Melissa Collins was the oldest of three children, born to Betty and John Collins, though they had several other half-siblings through their father. Melissa, Letitia, and Tyrese started out life in Western Tennessee and moved to Akron while they were still youngsters. Letitia Collins, the middle child, is 43 years old now, a mom and grandma herself. It makes her even more appreciative of the memories she has of her big sister and their childhood together. I don't know, we did a lot when we were kids. I mean, when we, when we were in Tennessee, we did like... Uh, we played outside a lot, but I mean, when we moved up here, even when she would hang out with her friends, I would always tag along. I don't know, we just did normal, normal kid stuff. Was she okay with that, her younger sister tagging along? Not all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I used to be a tattletale too, so. <laughs> but your job is the younger Right, right. Yes. Right. Melissa was nice. She had, she could be mean though, <laughs> but she was a good person. She had a lot of friends, too. Melissa was still 16 when Jasmine was born. Being a teen mom was no picnic. But Letitia thinks the experience was changing Melissa for the better, giving her an anchor in a world that wasn't always stable. It gave her uh, more sense of a direction of where she wanted to be. She, the main thing she wanted to be was a good mom. That was her, her main thing. She, just, she wanted to be a good mom above all else. She was going to the, I'm not sure if I'm saying it correctly, but the teen pregnancy school. She was getting straight A's at the time. She was she was really focused to, to do right, you know, to be a good mom and provide for her. Melissa lived at home for a few months after the baby was born, then moved to that Westwood Avenue residence. It wasn't working. Melissa didn't care for her 29-year-old landlady, or the landlady's 37-year-old live-in boyfriend. And she was in the process of talking with my mom to move back home. And it never happened. Melissa was close to her mom. The two women talked several times a day. Even the year before, when Melissa ran away for a couple of weeks after learning she was pregnant, she had a friend call her mom to tell her she was safe. She didn't want her mom to worry. But Betty also knew her daughter's life had been a complicated one. There had been physical and sexual abuse and reasons she didn't want to live at home. 
and several boyfriends in her past. So Betty wasn't exactly sure what to think when Melissa didn't call the day after they'd spent that afternoon running errands together, or the day after that. After the absence seemed too long, Betty went to the house on Westwood and found the scene looking as it had when she dropped her daughter off that day. The freshly washed and folded clothes from the laundromat were still stacked and waiting to be put away. Her purse was in the bedroom. The diaper bag that the young mother carried everywhere was present. Was there some unspoken, unfathomable reason she'd run away? Betty had to at least briefly consider it. But the refrigerator was stocked with baby bottles, and there were packages of untouched diapers. Wouldn't she have taken those? The plaque inscribed with Jasmine's birth date, the little memento Melissa always showed off was still there. As were Jasmine's new baby photos and Melissa's asthma medication. Little things all adding up. She wouldn't have left those behind. The landlady's boyfriend said Melissa had gone back out the night after her mom had dropped her off. He said it was about 7.30 that evening, and she left with Jasmine to walk to a store four blocks away. He never saw her return. And so Betty continued to wait for Melissa to contact her for 11 days. On the 12th day, she called police. And that's when the studio picture of baby Jasmine intended to brighten up a wall or maybe a fireplace mantle, became a missing persons poster. Detectives initially thought Melissa might have left on her own. After all, her own family had waited 12 days to call them, so clearly they thought that was a possibility. Still, everyone was searching. The police were interviewing friends and acquaintances, while Betty Collins posted pictures of Melissa and Jasmine on telephone poles in stores throughout West Akron. Both Betty and Akron police chased down leads. There were tips suggesting they had been killed, and tips suggesting they had moved south. Nobody knew which scenario was closer to the truth. There was never evidence of foul play, nor evidence Melissa had intended to leave. She and Jasmine were simply gone. Weeks passed without word from them. The family quietly acknowledged Melissa's 18th birthday on November the 25th. Jasmine's first birthday on December 29th went uncelebrated. And then an interesting development six months after the disappearance. The landlady's live-in boyfriend killed himself. His name was Raymond Smith Jr. His friends called him Sweet Pea. And in the past six months, he'd had the attention of Akron detectives. After all, his story about the pair leaving the house to go to the store the evening of August 8th made him the last person known to have seen Melissa and Jasmine. So it's just kind of a red flag of, you know, anybody that reports somebody missing under those circumstances, uh, especially when they're not a family member, that, that can be very, very suspicious. That's Sergeant Jeff Smith. He's been with the Akron Police Department for 14 years, and his most recent assignment has been investigating juvenile victims of crime. 
he thinks the focus on Raymond Smith was warranted. The man's story had raised eyebrows because it wasn't told exactly the same way. The time Melissa and Jasmine left the apartment, whether they were alone, where they were headed, the details changed in the retelling. And the Collins family told investigators Melissa had mentioned Raymond Smith before. She admitted to being a little afraid of him. Melissa had said that the boyfriend had uh, tried to hit on her at one point, and then there were was thoughts that the uh, 29-year-old, too, was, uh, she was trying to also hit on her. So, and then there was some friction between the 29-year-old lady she was living with and Melissa, so they didn't really get along all that well. But she was still living there, uh, running a room from them. Melissa really wanted to get away from there. Her parents told her to come home, and she agreed. She only needed a day or two to pack up. But the day after that conversation, she was gone. There was a whole lot more reasons to be afraid of Raymond Smith than Betty knew, probably more than Melissa had known. The man they called Sweet Pea was a drug abuser and had felony convictions for sexual imposition and aggravated assault. He'd been arrested a total of 24 times and accrued 10 years in prison between Ohio and New Jersey. He was actively being hunted by crack dealers for robbing a drug house. To top it off, Smith had previously been considered in the case of a possible homicide. It happened in Tuskegee, Alabama, 10 years earlier, when a 13-year-old relative of Smith's was found floating in a swimming pool. The coroner couldn't determine the cause of death, but whatever happened in that case had authorities casting a suspicious eye in Smith's direction. And Smith was still adding to his rap sheet. When Melissa knew him, he was out on bond, awaiting a trial on charges of receiving stolen property. Soon after Melissa and Jasmine vanished, Smith and his landlady girlfriend moved out of the Westwood home and into another on Raymond Street in Akron's Lane, Worcester neighborhood. And that's where they were living on February 12, 1992, when the girlfriend found Smith hanging from an orange extension cord in the basement. There was no suicide note, though Smith did leave a piece of paper with five words on it. To whom it may concern. If he intended on explaining something, he had a change of heart. The rest of the page was blank. It's possible it wasn't Melissa and Jasmine weighing on his mind. Smith had been a patient at the Portage Path Community Mental Health Center, and his girlfriend said he threatened suicide before. Police were also told Smith was dreading a court appointment he had the next day on the stolen property case. He was afraid that, because of his previous convictions, he would receive a stiff sentence in the outstanding property case, and he was desperate to stay out of prison. Also, there was some consideration given to whether his hanging was suicide at all. The FBI reported a confidential informant had told him it was murder retaliation by drug dealers for Smith robbing a crack house. Investigators were bothered by the fact that Smith was found with a sweater balled up between his neck and the cord that choked him. Why would someone intent on killing themselves make such a strange effort? Or was the sweater's odd position the result of Smith putting up a struggle? In the end, the coroner ruled it a suicide. Meanwhile, 
police kept learning things that brought Melissa and Jasmine back into the picture of Raymond Smith's life. A witness told him that the night they disappeared, Smith too had vanished for a couple of days. When he came back, he had blood on his clothes. Unfortunately, that tip came far too late to find those clothes or ask Smith about the allegation. In 2006, Akron police renewed efforts to solve this mystery. Detective Scott Rubes was on a team that took a new approach. Several officers were involved, each assigned different people to interview and different evidence to reevaluate. But we kind of went through and reviewed everything and, and was just trying to get a different perspective on the case. Some of the stuff where we thought stuff might have been done, but we weren't sure. We went back and read it. That's, that's why I think we wound up doing the luminol again. Some of the older stuff just wasn't documented very well. Rubes and his colleagues went back to that house on Westwood. It had been more than 20 years since Melissa had lived there, since Smith and his landlady had lived there. But they searched for areas of the home that hadn't been renovated and used luminol to try to detect blood. They found none. They collected DNA from families so it could be in a database and searchable by any department in the country trying to identify their Jane Doe's. That hadn't been done before. Meanwhile, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children put a spotlight on the case, including releasing drawings showing how Melissa and Jasmine might look now. New tips came in, and one even led police to drag out the earth-moving equipment and cadaver dogs. An unidentified mail caller had left a message suggesting the bodies were buried in an Akron park. The caller didn't name the park, and he couldn't be reached with questions but he gave enough detail that detectives were confident it could only be one location. Sherbondi Hill. Sherbondi is a steep slope that descends into the Lane Worcester neighborhood and includes ball fields and play areas surrounded by woods. We actually brought in a backhoe in the summer of 2007. We had, we had a couple hits from the canine and we dug down six feet and probably 35, 30 areas. I mean, we, we tore up big sections of that park. We never did come across anything. But are you confident that if, if there was something there that you would have found it? Not 100%, no. But I, I do think we were very thorough. Dude, those hits from those cadaver dogs doesn't mean there's a body there. We just didn't find it. It very well could have been dead animals. So, and, and you, know, you don't even know where that is because basically a lot of that was sloped. So we actually had to start digging where the dog hit and we went uphill because over the years, that's what's gonna happen. If something's buried up the hill, that scent is gonna travel down, down the hill. So we, we tore up a pretty, pretty substantial section of those um, areas and, and those places where the dog hit, I think we were very thorough with that. What I'm wondering too is, is could there just be a place where, because we were out there so long, could the dog have gotten tired Maybe we missed a spot. Um, maybe we should have focused more by the driveway. or you know, That's always possible. But I, I, I think we did a very thorough job that day. We were there pretty much from 7 in the morning till late in the evening. We did the best we could, and we had, a lot of, we had a lot of personnel with us. The case review lasted several months, after which the investigating officers met to share their theories. And they didn't agree. In the end... Because we all 
went different directions. We all had our own pieces. We all had our own tips. There were a few that felt they're alive. There were a few that felt they're no longer with us. There were some that felt those that were alive even differed. Um, some thought that they had, they had some information where they may have moved down south and took on a new life with somebody in, I believe it was Kentucky. We also had some tips that they may have been taken to Detroit. So some of them believe that they might be in Detroit. Another one believed that uh, there was something about they found somebody who had knowledge of her secretly writing somebody in the military and that she was hoping and trying to leave the country to be with this person, and I believe it was in Germany. They were convinced that they think that's what happened, that we just didn't have a name of who that guy was that she was talking to. But they, we, all, we all had different opinions. As for Detective Rubes, his months spent delving into the disappearance only strengthened his original belief that Raymond Smith had something to do with it and that Melissa and Jasmine did not survive. There were a couple of us that just felt we, we believed that she was, it was foul play and that they were both killed and we had theories about who did it. Sergeant Jeff Smith agrees with Detective Rubes. I think at some point in 30 years, she would have reached out to somebody yeah. just to say, hey, you know, I, I ran off, sorry. I mean, she would have been 18 the next year. I mean, at some point, you would assume within a year or two or three, she would have reached out to an old friend or somebody and just to fall off the face of the earth. I, I, I think she was unhappy with certain aspects of her life and maybe her home life, but she still had a lot of friends and, and a, a big connection to Akron. And there'd be no reason to hide from anybody or, or not reach out or reconnect with them. So that's why I just think it's, there's no way that, no way that she's still alive. In looking over the old files, Detective Rubes was struck by the limited capabilities of police in 1991 compared to today. Now there are cell phones that leave behind trails, as well as traces of communication cameras that capture everyday activities in neighborhoods and businesses, social media that can both serve as a diary of a victim or a suspect, but also an avenue for people to speak out and share information police might not even know to ask. Even police training is different. Detective Rubes is certain that the Westwood Avenue property where Melissa had lived would have been treated like a crime scene. I am absolutely convinced if this happened today, we, we would find them and, and find out what happened. This would not be a lingering case for 30 years. Sergeant Smith agreed. He said Detective Sharon Price, the primary detective on the case in 1991, had asked the FBI if they had any databases that would help. And all they could do was to let her know if Melissa had opened a new credit account. Which it's funny because now... You know, they could probably tell you what you had for breakfast three weeks ago. You know, I mean, there's just so many databases and so much information that they can find and look up and they have stored. It's just a completely different world we live in now. Betty Collins died in 2015. She'd never stopped looking for her daughter and granddaughter. She told their story to anyone who would listen. 
She went to an event at the John S. Knight Center and passed out flyers. She made the rounds of TV talk shows. Montel Williams, Jerry Springer. And I don't know, I, I, I don't think my mom was willing to accept that she may have been deceased, but then after the years kept going and she was just like, Melissa would not have not reached out to me. She, she just wouldn't have just let, let all those years go by and not reach out to her. The years took their toll. It was hard. It was hard. I mean, it, it broke my mom completely down. Like, um, she was never the same. She helped my dad raise his kids, but that was her firstborn child and her first grandchild. And she never knew what happened to them. It was the not knowing, it was feeling like she was out there and, and she couldn't help her. She just, she was, it, was she, it just broke her. She couldn't get any answers. She felt helpless. And she just couldn't get answers. And I remember when um, the the three girls, Amanda and them, came up and they they found them. She has so much hope. The girls in Cleveland, are you mm -hmm. talking about, who were found in the house? Mm -hmm. She has so much hope. Letitia was talking about 2013, when it was discovered a man named Ariel Castro had been keeping three kidnapped girls in his Cleveland house for a decade. The idea that three women who had been missing since their teenage years had been found alive gave hope to families of victims everywhere. But if such an ending were possible for their own daughter and granddaughter, Betty and John Collins would not live to see it. They died four months apart from each other in 2015. There was one other avenue of hope. What if someone had killed Melissa but gave Jasmine away? Could Jasmine still be alive, growing up without any idea of her past? The first time this was a serious consideration was 2018, when a woman contacted Akron police wondering if she could be Jasmine. Another woman asked the same question in 2019, and a third woman in 2020. Each woman was ruled out, either by DNA or circumstances, but suddenly, more than two decades after Melissa and Jasmine vanished, there was this new theory nobody had really expressed before. The first one, I was, I was really hopeful and um, a little nervous at the same time. I didn't want to get my hopes up. I mean, she was already calling me aunt. And that was just, like, I really wish it would have been her. But then when it turned out not to be her, and then two more came up, it was just like, it was kind of overwhelming. And it was just like hurtful all over again. Because it was like, you don't want to get your hopes up because you're not sure if it's them. Painful, yes. But the idea of Jasmine still being alive made sense at some level. Killing somebody but a baby, that's, that's like a monster. Like, I couldn't even imagine somebody doing that. That's Sergeant Jeff Smith's thoughts exactly. I, I don't think it's likely at this point, 
but it's a possibility because as I had said earlier, I think some people out there could bring themselves to kill a 17-year-old for whatever motive that may be, but I think it'd be difficult even for a lot of those same people that could do something so heinous to then bring, then bring themselves to murder a little eight-month-old baby. Thirty years later, there is a new generation mourning the loss of Melissa and Jasmine Collins. Letitia has four children and a grandchild, people who will never know their aunt and cousin. 28-year-old Carla Reed remembers navigating the emotional landmines with her grieving grandmother. I used to talk to her about them. Well, I was born in 93, so I didn't never meet Melissa or Jasmine, but I heard them talk about them. I knew I had an aunt and a cousin that was missing. And I used to ask my grandma questions about them. My grandma would start crying anyways, but it did make her happy for you to bring them up and talk about them. Meanwhile, Letitia's own mourning has taken on new dimensions. Looking back, she can see how she and Melissa were at a turning point in their lives, from bickering teenage sisters to a future where they might become best friends. They were robbed of that next phase of their lives together. I just remember when me and Melissa was, was kids. I mean, we, like, like I said, I tagged along regardless if she wanted me to or not. But um, we had this, this relationship where we would, we would fight, we would argue but she was very protective of me. And then like right before she came up missing and she had Jasmine, we had, we had I mean, I was older. I wasn't the tattletale anymore. And we, we started, our relationship started changing and it was evolving and we were getting closer. Letitia is confident someone alive knows what happened to Melissa and Jasmine. And I just wish that they would find it in their heart to just come forward. I mean, if I could have gave my mom anything, it would have been answers to know what happened to Melissa and Jasmine. Because it just broke her. And she never recovered from that. If Melissa were alive today, she'd be 47. Jasmine would be 30. If you have any information that could help solve this case, please call Sergeant Jeff Smith at the Akron Police Department at 330-375-2530. That's it for this month's edition of Unresolved, a collaborative podcast between Ohio Mysteries and the Akron Beacon Journal.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.